Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. Here you will find episode number 16. Speech giver for this episode is Dorothy Day. Speech picker is myself, Mike. Uh, The title of this episode is An Atheist Guide to Raising Your Children Catholic. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, The guys and I certainly did, and we will talk to you later. When you see the road from every direction It will give you eyes, give you hope It'll give you perspective I've been back and forth And yeah, I had my crashes Now I've seen the road, it goes everywhere Got Matt here, got Landon here, got Ross here, and hopefully we're going to make some magic happen. Not too much magic. That's a pagan sort of thing. Got some grace happening. All right. Um, The speech excerpt that I have is from a chapter entitled Love Overflows. Um, This comes from the point in time where she has just had her child, Tamar, uh, her only child. Uh, outside of the one whom she lost to abortion. And she's talking about just sort of how this changes her outlook on life. Um, She's not exactly an atheist anymore, sort of. Um, The man whom she is with is an atheist, though, uh, fervently. And she's sort of trying to figure out, how am I going to raise this kid? I'm not exactly an atheist communist anymore. Not exactly anything. All right. So here we go. This again comes from the chapter entitled Love Overflows, sort of in the middle of the book. What a driving power joy is. When I was unhappy and repentant in the past, I turned to God. But it was my joy at having given birth to a child that made me do something definite. I wanted Tamar to have a way of life and instruction. We all crave order. And in the book of Job, hell is described as a place where no order is. I felt that, quote, belonging to a church would bring that order into her life, which I felt my own had lacked. If I could have felt that communism was the answer to my desire for a cause, a motive, a way to walk in, I would have remained as I was. But I felt that only faith in Christ could give the answer. The Sermon on the Mount answered all the questions as to how to love God and one's brother. I knew little about the sacraments, and yet, here I was, believing, knowing that without them, Tamar would not be a Catholic. That was from Dorothy Day, born in 1897, passed away in 1980. Before you hear from my fellow speech guys, let me just run through a few more bullet points uh, just to kind of paint a very broad picture of her life. Like all of us, except for uh, an unmentioned person here, she is an Illini. That's right, fighting Illini back when the chief was a dancer for us. Actually, I doubt that they... No, they did. The chief, that was like, that was like the 20s. Oh, pardon me. Okay. It would have been close. It would have been close if she was 1897. Maybe she started the chief. Um, She, journalist. So her autobiography, like I said, is a really, really good read um, because she is an excellent writer. Lived a very interesting um, 
life in which she challenged herself in so many different ways, but through building a big heart of love, probably the most significantly. Um, as the speech sort of indicates, yeah, she was an atheist communist, did become Catholic, uh, raised her child that way, um, and ended up devoting her Catholic life to starting what was called the Catholic Worker um, with a gentleman named Peter Morin in the early 20th century, which still exists today. And they sort of devote themselves to sort of, um, you sort of might call a social justice arm of the Catholic Church, uh, led by a lot of lay people. Um, she is not a saint, but she is a, quote, servant of God, or I believe blessed is uh, sort of the surname, if you will, of the servant of God phase. That's the first of four steps towards canonization. So I think she's just servant of God. Okay, just servant. That's I don't not think she's synonymous blessed yet. with blessed. Okay. Um, but <laughs> so, again, that's sort of brief, broad overview Maybe let's first hear a little bit from the fellow guys here, what they might have known about Dorothy Day, uh, correctly or incorrectly, before, uh, before they began study of this speech. I knew very little... Oh. Alright, I knew not very much about Dorothy Day, I'll be honest. I think I would have said um, Catholic, recent history, did a lot to help the poor. And honestly, that's probably where my knowledge of her would have stopped. Maybe a little bit more than that, but not very much, I guess, prior to researching for the speech night. Um, so yeah, I guess I learned quite a bit about her. I don't know how much we want to dive into our, our thoughts in our life yet, but that was my pre-research knowledge, very little. No, that was good. That was good for a warm-up. <clears throat> so uh, a friend of mine is, um, is actually pretty involved with a, the Catholic worker movement and was, um, I don't know if she, no, well, she recently moved, she used to live on a Catholic worker house slash farm type of thing. Um, it was a relatively small kind of group um, that, but yeah, they definitely uh, aligned themselves as, as Catholic workers. So I guess I knew a decent amount about the, the movement um, and she had told me um, a little bit about Dorothy Day. Um, I couldn't tell you like a detailed biography of her life, but certainly was aware of her. Um, uh, yeah, her just concern for the poor, um, as well as her uh, emphasis on social justice and, I guess, um, sympathies. Definitely, I mean, I would say sympathies for communism, but like certainly, like talked against, uh, spoke out against communism later in her life, at least. But um, I guess, at least, like that was kind of one of the the main things I thought about her. I guess was just like, yeah, the political implications of, of what she um, like said and did. Um, but like certainly an interesting figure and kind of I, I think a, an important figure for nowadays, where there's a lot of uh, a lot of division on that sort of stuff. What did your friends say the Catholic worker house was like? Um, the one she was at was was pretty legitimate. It was a, a fairly small operation, so it was basically a couple, so husband, wife, and their daughter, who's uh, at least she was like ten or so, ten to twelve at the time. My friend lived there. She's probably, I mean, I guess she's probably fifteen or so now, maybe. 
Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it was this couple. They had one, sometimes two interns, so to speak, there. Um, Kayla, my friend, lived there. Um, not as like an official like intern or anything, but she just basically rented a room. And then they would host um, up to, usually just one, but sometimes up to two um, either expecting or recent mothers who uh, didn't have a place to stay and didn't uh, just either had some issues and just needed to get back on their feet. So they would basically host them for um, up to a year, sometimes a little longer, depending on the situation, um, and just kind of help guide them to, you know, becoming independent with things. So that was kind of like the main thing that their house did. They also had um, like CSA types of things, like uh, community service agriculture set up. They had a little bit of land, not like a real big thing, but um, kind of a small local farmy type of operation um, in addition to like hosting moms. So that was kind of the, the vibe there. Um, she did say that they at least the movement today, it, it varies quite a bit in terms of how that's lived out. Um, and I guess there are some houses that are more worker than Catholic. <laughs> you know, just like they're very, very into the political side and very, very into basically the pre, pre-conversion Dorothy Day. <laughs> um, but uh, not as strong on the Catholic end. But then, like, but the one that she was in seemed very legitimate. I think most of them are... are probably just as Catholic as worker, but, um, but yeah, I guess there is that sort of tendency in, in certain communities, but overall, I think she, I mean, she's really, I mean, she loves the movement. I mean, most of the people she's, um, introduced me to in that world are, are pretty, uh, pretty, uh, interesting, just like good people who like really have a heart for the poor and for, for helping others. So to what yeah. degree is Catholic workers at all associated with the Catholic church? Maybe that's a really loaded question, but is it in name only, or does like do parishes and churches like go through or have any sort of official yeah. oversight or not really? No, I mean I think that you would. I think in a useful way to articulate it is that it is as much Catholic as the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops is in the sense that. It's not a canonical branch of right. the church like a diocese is. Yeah. Um, now, there was a little anecdote that's kind of um, could be like illuminative here, I would say. Um, I don't know how many of you guys did the homework. Uh, was not super required, but I did watch the documentary Revolution of the Heart, I think. Was that what it was called from PBS? Anyone else? I watched. Uh, no, I think I watched the other one, the shorter one. Okay. I watched like five minutes of it. And one story they share with her, I think it was Cardinal Spellman. I don't know where he was from, but, oh yeah, here we go. Ross made that note here. Maybe that was in the five minutes he watched. Um, based upon her work, he asked Dorothy to remove Catholic from the Catholic worker title, um, because he felt that it did not. But I'll just leave it at that. He felt that it did not embody Catholic values. And um, 
Dorothy Day responded with, okay, I'll remove the word Catholic, but I'm going to send the 500 people whom we serve to your door. And that was that. Was that. I like that. That was pretty cool. And I think that sort of is another useful way to sort of illuminate her her style, which I think is what's so attractive, particularly to young um uh what's what's a good way to put this um young sincere catholics i guess is a good way to put it because she's sort of just she's is rebellious she's rebellious in a constructive way in a very faithful way you know she didn't say to cardinal spellman you know f you i'm gonna do whatever i want no she was like well, you know, here's the thing. I'm serving these 500 people, and I'm doing it because my Catholic faith informs and inspires me to do so. So if that's what you want, that's fine, but I'm going to send them my way, right? She's, so I, I don't know. I don't know what you guys might think of that sort of image or that sort of style, but I, I think that's sort of cool. I think constructively rebellious is a good way of putting it because, I mean, I think there's a certain amount of, um, there's certainly areas in which Catholicism can get kind of, um, or at least manifest itself in certain individuals as something stale and rigid, you know, and it, and it does take a certain type to like kind of break the mold a little bit. You know, I know um, like, um, like St. Francis of Assisi and St. Dominic, like, so the, like, these are two, um, saints who kind of started the whole, uh, um, I guess kind of renewed a lot of like m monasteries and, um, kind of had lived this like very intense, rigorous poverty. And there are a lot of people who were scandalized by that at the time who thought that was a, a, a bad way to live. Right. And now we look back at them as, you know, kind of cornerstones of, Catholicism, right? Like every country in the world has a Franciscan and or Dominican um, monastery somewhere, right? Um, I don't think she's on the level of that in terms of like historical importance of the church, but like certainly that type of person who like, yeah, like I'm sure there are a lot of bishops who are probably kind of grouchy about you know, St. Francis and St. Dominic at that point in time. Um, but like, yeah, they... We're living out something authentic, and, and that kind of played out as they went along. But, um, but yeah, I think she she does seem to be mostly constructively uh, uh, what is it? constructively rebellious, as you put it. One thing I do want to say though is I don't think she's quite. I don't think Catholic Worker has quite the same standing as the conference, the United <laughs> States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Uh, like, the, well, yeah, I I understand what you're getting at but it was yeah. useful. I don't know. It's quite as Catholic. Yeah. They're not as Catholic as that, but, um, but yeah, I would say it's similar in that it's not like an official religious order. That's like a hundred percent recognized by the church or it's not like, a um, an official, like Opus Dei. Um, Opus Dei might be a slightly yeah. better, uh, analogy. But, well, actually no, cause that's like a preliture, but whatever. Yeah, because I think that is somewhat right. Yeah, I don't. I to be honest, I don't know the details of like how that works. But. Um, yeah, this is an ecumenical yeah, podcast, guys, not a Catholic podcast. We have a mixed audience, mixed speech givers, <laughs> speech guys. <laughs> oh, I'm. What are you gonna say, Russ? 
No, I was just going to say that to jump off Matt's, yeah, just for like accuracy. I mean, as far as I understand it, like it'd be like if we were just like, oh, we're the Catholic podcast. Like we wouldn't have any authority from the church to make that statement. We could do it, but like it wouldn't have any actual weight or standing. Yeah, that's what it seems like. The Was, more, I, I just didn't know how often, right. like maybe any sort of parish would have like attached itself to like the local Catholic workers thing in any formal capacity. Landon, did you have any knowledge of Dorothy Day before this? I think I generally knew there was a U of I connection or perhaps Chicago roots. I think I probably confused her with Jane Addams, Whole House sort of thing. And I also, what I also couldn't do was like place her in a time frame. I, I probably would have put her as like earlier in history than than where she was um so knew of her didn't know much as a brief sidebar for the illini in our group again um sorry to drive that in for the sensitive uh odd people in our group here but um she writes somewhat significantly about her time in champagne um in that autobiography so it's sort of fun fun to read there so i'll sort of leave it at that um I found it kind of interest kind of interesting um like I don't know just kind of jumping into this idea of kind of her I guess I forgot what we said, constructive rebelliousness, but just how she doesn't really fit the quote-unquote normal mold. But, and maybe I was trying to think, I think it maybe it's just because she's more recent. So kind of like Matt said, like, you know, there's been saints in the past who, um, you know, maybe probably did ruffle a lot of feathers and weren't necessarily popular in their own time. But, you know, looking back on them now, hundreds of years later, we don't really probably necessarily see as much of their actual personality play out. They're kind of just this, we kind of put them on a mountaintop, you know. But with her, you know, she's commenting on pretty modern issues that are still relevant today and discussed and debated today. So I found it kind of an interesting place to be in a, like, with a person who, like you said, I mean, she's the first of four steps, so she's not a canonized saint by any means yet, but kind of on that path and obviously embodies a lot of pretty awesome virtues and yet at the same time took a lot of stances that, I'll admit, kind of made me slightly uncomfortable. Um, so I don't know. I think I listed them in the outline, but so she was a pacifist, pretty strong pacifist, even in in World War II. Which um, so like there's that, and then um, she literally got arrested multiple times for protesting air raid drills, and then never voted in her life, like by choice. And those were three things that's like, huh? Had I not like pre podcast prep, if you would have told me any of those ideas. And I'll admit it, kind of, uh, you know, maybe not the best part of me. Like, I would have been like, that's some dumb, like, 19-year-old college kid that doesn't know anything. Like, World War II is completely justified. You need to exercise your right to vote. And that's ridiculous to protest something that could potentially protect and save lots of lives. So anyway, like, but then you hear it. It's like, no, 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 those aren't some, you know, dumb 19-year-old kid having these thoughts. That's an actual person that's, like, held up as somebody we're supposed to, you know, you know be able to learn from and look at their life and they did a lot of things well so anyway i just kind of found that an interesting like parts of her life were very attractive and how she she was so 
you know, invested in serving the poor and living that life. And but then other, you know, of her political stances were like, huh, that's just not something that makes a lot of sense to me. So I just found that kind of an interesting, I guess, I don't know if dichotomy is the right word, but um, yeah, I just kind of struggled with that a little bit. And like, where do I really place Dorothy Day? Yeah, I mean, push might be too strong of a word, but to sort of just add some texture to that thought, you know, I think the difference between her and the metaphorical 19 year old who's against war is, you know, she now there, that 19 year old has many other ignorant friends who are like, Oh yeah, you know, anti-war, which, you know, it isn't say that anti-war is, you know, by no means always the wrong position, but she was consistent and she faced ridicule for it. Um, they lost the Catholic Worker newspaper lost half of its subscriptions when she came out as being against World War II. Um, but a fun little tidbit from the documentary I watched for those air raid drills, she would call the police and let them know that they were going to be out so it'd be easier for them to find them and do their jobs. <laughs> so, sort of cute. Let's uh, maybe hop into the speech a little bit. There's a lot of parts and parcels to the speech that I'm looking forward to unwrap, opening Pandora's box here. Um, she talks a lot about how important order is to raising a child. Um she felt that there was a certain amount of order in communism, but not necessarily quite to the same extent that belonging to a church um, and or a parish. So, sorry, real, real quick, before before you jump into that, can you just give a quick background? Because we've mentioned it several times on her past experience with communism. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, good placement there. So growing up, she, it sounded like this, yeah, going from memory, her parents went to church. I think they're like Episcopalians. Went to church. Um, her dad was more of an atheist, though, actually. Um, she, let's see, had one sister, I think maybe two siblings. Um, she did grow up in New York, then moved to Chicago. Um Around that age where people sort of start to become questioning and rebellious, she, yeah, became communist. She was a journalist in several communist newspapers. Um, very, very active as a good communist atheist. Um, and, man, whoa, man, what was the exact transition for communists to theist if you will or sort of being in doubt uh i mean her child being born was huge <clears throat> but i feel like that was more of a nail in the coffin um so don't quite exactly remember what those first little transition points were um very active in women's suffrage that was the first time that she'd gotten arrested at a women's march um and yeah, became Catholic very much on her own, though, in the 1920s, I think, and sort of felt this 
real sense of lamentation that other Catholics were not out her, sort out there with her, sort of doing the same sort of socially activist things to some extent. Not the exact same thing she was doing before. She sort of focused in on some things. Um, but yeah, any other gaps to fill in for general background, Russ? No, I think that's pretty. I think as we start talking more about her child, it might kind of illuminate some of it. Um, role of order in growing up. Had some thoughts there. Jordan Pearson's 12 Rules for Life. Ross made some notes on Bishop Barron, uh, certain fundamental truths, truth, goodness, beauty, the transcendentals. Um, what, what do you guys got there? Why don't you guys try bringing something to the table, okay? That sounded like loaded in a negative way. That was just me talking. <laughs> Yeah, so she says a lot in this paragraph, um, you know, she's grappling with how to raise Tamar, you know, references like the communist way and her overcoming of the lacking there, which, I don't know, is the, the communism is both her own conflict and a conflict of like, Perhaps just an entire world view of how to raise Tamar that fell short. Um, is that what, what what we're dealing with in the heart of the paragraph? Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily need to go deep into it right at this point, but I think that the problem, and actually I think communism is actually sort of a solution, but sort of intimated here that it's still not quite the solution that Dorothy Day sees in the church, is that... Okay, put it very simply. If God exists, what do you do with your life? Okay? you That means that you do X, Y, and Z. Okay, I'm going to be just the most simple basic level. I'm going to try to be really generous and really loving, etc., etc. If God does not exist, the most basic thing is... Well, I'm going to do what I want. Now, again, that's oversimplifying things. But hopefully you sort of see is that one is a thought of organization. This is what I'm going to do because of X. And these actions and behaviors are ordered behaviors. Versus doing whatever you want is like an inherently disorganized action. It could be a thousand different things. It could be ten thousand different things. And I think it's just an interesting way that Dorothy Day sort of incidentally frames this problem, and I'll talk about it more later. But it's the I call it the codification problem of atheism. How does one codify atheistic behavior in a in a way that allows it to be quote-unquote evangelize the next generation to be indoctrinated to the next generation does that sort of make sense yeah i think it does because there's so there's like a certain value structure inherent in something like communism and it does have a yeah i mean i suppose like a gospel if you will um like I think literally in the terms of like the Communist Manifesto, but also just figuratively or more abstractly and in, in just the general principles of like equality and 
um, equity and you know distribution of resources and things like that. Um, and like, yeah, I mean, she found it as a a solution, like, but uh, just not as complete a solution as like the Catholic Church provided. Um, and I know like a big part, like one tenet of communism that. It was, so this wasn't like explicitly written in the manifesto, but like Marx and Engels wrote about it and a few other writings. I couldn't tell you exactly which on the top of my head, but basically that like an ideal communist society would like raise children in common, right? So as a child is born, like they're kind of, I don't know, orphanage isn't quite the right word, but they're not necessarily raised within like a nuclear family. They're kind of raised within this sort of societal thing, you know, or, or kind of community structure, right? So they're... Um, I think it's kind of cartoonish or, or car, uh, what's the word I'm looking for characterized as like this you know they snatch your kids away from you and indoctrinate them and inject them with poison to make them you know communist robots or something but um, but like I guess the vision was just like okay we're going to raise like all of our children in common and have all these you know communist values right um, <clears throat> so I think she saw that as like a partial solution, but like the Catholic Church, I guess to her had had all of the answers, not just some of them, right? And I think that's that's what's attractive about communism is that like they offer really interesting and like I think true answers to some questions, you know, in terms of like, well, yeah, like we all are made with equal dignity, right? So like, why shouldn't our material um, circumstances reflect that, you know? And like, oh, we all are. Um, you know, if we are um, on the same plane, you know, then yeah, we should should kind of treat treat people like that. So, um, but anyway, I guess yeah, I think it does make sense that like she had that sort of view. But I, I'd be curious, like more specifically, what answers that the church had that she didn't see in communism. Like she says, the church is more complete mm -hmm. in this paragraph, but I suppose that would kind of be more in the book. At its base, it solves for, like, the distribution of wealth and a little bit of power, but it doesn't, it doesn't address, like, emotional, spiritual, you know, mental aspects of the individual life. It's a way to organize society for the most part. So when you reference its values and whatever she was wrapped up in and protesting and believing at that time, it doesn't, doesn't probably add up to be a great parent for a child and you know what to do next there so i think the completeness towards the order of organized religion of catholicism specifically of christianity of a faith um has obviously a whole uh, depth to it to believe in setting boundaries and um raising and training goodness in a child's heart that has to be taught like children don't just know how to share or love or be kind I believe I'm no father myself so we should defer to Ross here um, you know that mostly has to be trained and ingrained from what I've read uh, and I don't, I don't think there's much in the uh in the manifesto about how to do that. Yeah, I have I have read the Communist Manifesto, and there's nothing about 
uh, that. But uh, just to jump in my thoughts on the kind of this idea of order then and her thoughts, I kind of read it a little bit as kind of like I think Matt had said, like, yeah, there are these legitimate problems. And in some ways, initially, communism can seem to answer some of them. Um, you know, with there, there is the problem of there's this poverty and the poor and things like that. So it, but when it comes to order, then this idea of, okay, kind of like Mike said is in terms of like, what, like kind of what do you structure your life around? What are you orienting your life towards? Like what's the kind of overarching principles then beyond just like, like you said, Lena, like the, the kind of economic views and it seems like in those aspects, communism is lacking, which just like an interesting point, it seems like a lot of nations that have adopted the communist system then become pretty, I mean, tyrannical, oppressive, right? It's almost like, okay, the system doesn't provide the order, so we will enforce it um, in a very negative way, where the church gave maybe more of the ways to, yes, these things that initially or partly attracted her to communism, this idea of, you know, the lesser, the poor, like she felt like they were better served in, a, in you know, in the church here, but like a different system. They was able to better provide that structure. And to kind of tie it into childbearing, like just, I mean, it's insane how much kids need structure to thrive. If you let them have unstructured day, I mean, if you let them have unstructured days, it will mess you up for a week. Um, so for the viewers, right, I've got a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. And, I mean, it's insane. My five-year-old started going to school for three hours a day. I mean, he's practically at a little day camp, right? Three hours, they play games, they draw some pictures. And, like, my three-year-old has been behaving terribly since it started because that little change was made to like her how her day was organized now i'd like to think we're like we're all adults and um so maybe the structure that we need isn't being told what to do every second of our lives but i think the there's something to the point that like yeah we need some sort of guiding principles to kind of keep us focused on whatever we've, the values we've chosen to live by, if that makes sense. And um, anyway, so I'm kind of rambling, but I feel like to me that it seems clear, like to Dorothy Day, like communism didn't give those, you know, it kind of gave her the rebel serve the poor, but it didn't give anything like that. These kind of, well, the transcendentals, right? These truth, goodness, beauty, religion, spiritual, they just didn't touch those questions that she was grappling with. So I'll jump one more thing. So, um, so kind of just to kind of continue, just kind of playing with the idea of of order. I mean, kind of we're we're kind of using them interchangeably, but order and structure, and like, and we're not talking just about like a three year old. Hey, I'm gonna or I'm gonna structure your day because otherwise you're gonna fall apart. We're more kind of talking about how am I gonna like order my life, right? Like, what am I gonna orient it towards? Um, if that makes sense, and it seems like. For her, at least, because I think what Mike, you were wanting to get to is kind of how she was going to raise her child, right? And this this system of belief gave her, I guess, what she was looking for. Um, I think it's interesting then to kind of, maybe we should start talking. I feel like we've been, uh, you know, talking a lot about kind of dismissing the communist part. But, like, I think the, the line at the end, the Sermon on the Mount answered all the questions as to how 
as to how to love God and one's brother. So, like, I don't know, just that sentence there seems to be kind of, maybe that's what drew Dorothy. Like, that seems to be what gave her what she felt like was that order that she was, or that, that life she wanted for her child, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. So, I, what about that earlier in the paragraph? We all crave order, and in the book of Job, hell is described as a place where no order is. I didn't really research that part, so I don't... What? Yeah. Somebody enlighten me. So, Mike, I know you read, you read the Job section as well. And uh, did you... I don't know if I saw that specifically outlined, or I don't remember a specific line that said that said that I mean it certainly is a theme um, but like yeah I guess I don't know if if I saw yeah, that specifically laid out that's I I I was yeah thinking that as I read it and then finished reading it like huh how how did she come away with way with that it's not it's not clearly not disordered I mean I've heard various priests or theologians say something to that effect um i have some thoughts your notes were actually very useful um and sort of explaining who ellie lefaz and bildad and zofar are like the guys at the bar like they're all arguing over beers like oh this is your problem you know, like, <laughs> that's actually know. exactly what i was kind of envisioning with them <laughs> <laughs> um i guess just a couple of thoughts to get us started with the book of job is you know i was aware of generally what it was to the same extent that any averagely educated person is but i was sort of struck you know i had a little i it's easy to read it and be like get frustrated at certain texts like oh gosh how that that just doesn't make sense but i sort of went into it a little bit more of an open mind and was sort of struck by like man this is just so relevant. You know, Job and the author of this text, they are just struggling with the exact, exact same sorts of questions that we are. It's like, there is all of this suffering in my life and the world, and how do I make sense of it? And um, yeah, Matt, your notes were really helpful in sort of elucidating the different perspectives that are expressed and sort of what ends up being ironed out as this is this is what it is so maybe you want to sort of take it from there and sort of breaking down some of the items sure i guess for for those who aren't familiar the book of job is uh i don't know somewhere in the middle of the bible i guess but it's story of a man who's a very devout and righteous holy man um it starts off with a dialogue between god and satan which is kind of interesting where basically uh, God points out his um, loyal servant Job. Satan says, yeah, he's not going to be loyal um, if you take away all his gifts, right? Because Job is this wealthy dude, whatever. So God says, all right, Satan, you can do what you want with him, um, and he'll still, he'll still uh, worship me and he'll still be faithful. Um, so Satan does this, and Job suffers a number of maladies, his... Uh, his children die, he loses his wealth, he gets some horrible skin disease. Um, at one point, 
This is has to be like the worst thing. So his wife literally, I don't, so it's not an exact quote, but she says something pretty directly to the effect of, why don't you just go curse God and die? Like she says this to Joe. It's like, holy smokes, man. Like, and then on top of that, and then he's got three bozo friends who just come out of the woodwork and just blame him for all of it, right? So these are the, these are the guys at the bar, you know. So one of them, I mean, they all make basically the same argument that like, um, if you suffer, it's because you deserve it, and because God is punishing you, and and God is always just. Therefore, like if you suffer, it's because you deserve it, right? Um, even if you don't realize it. Um, Job obviously argues against that, you know, and makes point. You know, I'm just as righteous as you guys are. You know, there are plenty of wicked people who never suffer the way I am. Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, you know, and he's still obviously, um, yeah, complains about what, you know, how this is terrible, which it is. I mean, it's, I mean, he is, um, according to God himself, a righteous man. And then he just suffers terrible thing. You know, why would God just let Satan do this to him? You know, um, it seems like ridiculous and kind of, uh, Whimsical isn't the right word, but just kind of like what, you know, very flippant, uh, I guess. Um, basically, what ends up happening is, so so all of the, these dialogues happen between Job and his friends. Um, there's a guy named Elihu who comes and maybe offers a slightly more nuanced view in that, like, you know, his suffering isn't a punishment, but a warning about what sin can do and what sin can lead to. Okay, like maybe a little more nuanced, but like still... Um, he still kind of very much takes this idea that he knows why God is doing this, and you know, and then God basically like tears Job and all his buddies a new one. Um, I think this starts in chapter thirty-eight, I think. But um, but yeah, and I think that there are a couple. Well, I guess that the God's answer is interesting because, like, he he doesn't say, "Oh, well, this is why suffering exists because of this, this, and this." You know, he he basically says, oh, "Well, here's a couple quotes, I guess." Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? And these aren't all consecutive; these are kind of cherry picked a little bit. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Um, it goes so on and so I mean, there's like several pages of God basically just laying out all of these like detailed, complicated, nuanced elements of the universe that like Job certainly doesn't know anything about. Um, and it's it's a pretty like Obviously, it's very, like, intense, and, like, God's very, uh, uh, like, vigorously rebuking Job in the midst of this, but it is kind of beautiful in a way, just, like, to think about, like, you know, there's a lot of uh, references to, like, nature and its beauty and its grandeur that, like, Job certainly wasn't there for, right, and had no part in in making it so. Um, But, yeah, I guess a couple interesting takeaways from a few commentators, uh, Bishop Barron and Jordan Peterson are kind of the folks I'm, I'm drawing this from because I think they have some pretty interesting commentaries on Job. And and they do mention order, which I think is interesting because, like, that is something that, that Dorothy Day mentioned. It's just that, like, the universe is just, like, an immensely complicated uh, and diverse um, 
mixture of things. And for one person to have like their own very minute perspective, like they can't possibly speak to the, the entirety of the meaning, the intelligibility, the overall goodness of the world. Like even if they do suffer and even if they do live uh, or like experience things that aren't just by our perspective, you know, um, and that there is an order to things and for like one thing and for your suffering to not happen, like that does upset the order of the universe in some way, shape or form. Um, so it is, yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of the connection I see, I guess, between Job and disorder and then like the order that God brings to the world. And then like Dorothy Day kind of sees like Sermon on the Mount as kind of like maybe a, uh, maybe like a more um, detailed description of like what that order looks like. It's interesting, like just the answer, and I think this will kind of lead well into like Mike's, this idea of this codification and like raising children now. But um, so the, the, the three guys at the bar who are talking to Job, who pretty much say, you know, you did something wrong, like this is your fault, you know, it's, it's on you. Um, obviously, that's not the right answer. And, you know, God kind of changes in the book of Job the perspective, how they need to look at it. But it's on a more practical level. Jesus kind of takes the opposite stance in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the other, you know, book of the Bible she references in this excerpt. So... Right in the, so on the in the book of Job, the three guys at the bar's response is, "This is your fault. You've done something wrong." So they're blaming the person who's suffering. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of does the opposite, right? He says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are the meek." So he almost seems seems to elevate those who are suffering, which is kind of the opposite of um, what the three guys at the bar in the book of Job were doing. And it seems like that is what. Dorothy Day pretty much ordered her entire life towards, right? I mean, she had her anti, you know, certain stances. Yeah, she got arrested for protesting air raid drills. But I think overall, I mean, the the biggest mission of her life was to serve the poor, right? And to serve these people that were suffering. So it seems like she saw the answer in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount that she maybe thought was lacking in another any, any other system, which is why she chose to order her life that way and was going to raise her kid in the church, pretty much, right? That's what she seems like she says. So um, I think that's probably why, I know we haven't, we've kind of talked about her a lot, but I mean, that was her big thing, was serving the poor, and I think that's kind of why this is the, falls under the speeches about God series, is because she served the poor because of this worldview she had, that she felt like the church provided or, you know, this belief in God provided. So I think it's kind of interesting then. And I think we are going to talk about it some, but like, where do people find that? Like it's, I feel like we see people today or maybe it's always been the case. Maybe it's just today. I guess I don't know, but they try to find it in other venues, you know? So I can think we've talked about that before, but, um, you know, we recognize like we need this order, we need these overarching principles to live our lives by, to raise our children in, yada yada yada. Um, and I, it, I mean, I write like the whole, I mean, politics today, right? Identity politics, or is that I don't know if that's the right phrase, but and or they'll find some people will find some movement they're super excited about, and it seems like they're looking for pretty much what Dorothy found, but they're trying to find it in another place, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, yeah, it's sort of a good transition to this topic that I was most excited about, the codification problem, um, which is a term I made up. Just like Ross's term from last episode, the ghost of religion. Is that the one you trademarked? Yes, it's been trademarked. <laughs> okay. okay, I owe you $10 every time I say that. Yeah, um, so to kind of refresh your memories about the sort of nature of this question, um, the question I asked earlier in the, this episode was, if God exists, then it means that if God exists, no one is saying that they're going to be doing less things because of that. The follow-up, at the very least, intellectual internal response is, well, now I'm going to do X, Y, or Z, or not do X, Y, or Z. There's an ordered response from that. But if God does not exist, then, you know, and that's not to say, like, atheists are all hedonists by any means, but it's just there's another layer. There is another obstacle to get past because the default response is, well, I'm just going to do this or that, okay? So here's a different way of expressing it that's sort of uh, quantifiable. So I did a little Amazon search result. How, how to raise your child Christian. I got 147 search results. You guys guess. I also typed in then how to raise your child atheist. How many search results do you think I got? 49. <laughs> 16. Oh, yeah, right. Ross. <laughs> Ross. Yeah, 16 is exactly right because he's probably looking at the notes. 16. And only two of them were actually relevant. 14 of them were some sort of nonsense. All right. I would actually right. think, I would think that'd be higher. I would think that, like, someone had picked up on, like, the emphasis to raise children in the right way and might already sure. try to counter it, but... Sure. Sure, but key word there is someone. You're counting on, I think someone did. There were 16 of someone's versus how to raise your child Christian. I mean, there you read the Gospels, and, you know, obviously there's divisions among Christians and how to do it, but you're certainly compelled to do something after reading the Gospels. No one feels less guilty to do things after reading the Gospels, all right? Um, so the point is, is that, there's a certain consensus of how to raise your child Christian, but, oh man, the question of how to raise your child atheist without God, that's just this tremendously difficult thing um, that's hard to get past. Um, man, I don't feel like this topic is taking on as much momentum as I'd, as I'd hoped. How else do you get past? No. Oh, well. We can have a flop episode. <laughs> well, well, I guess maybe... No, I think this is interesting. And I... Yeah, this is interesting. So... We're interesting, okay? What the hell? 
<laughs> that's that was funny, Ross. But um, I don't know. Have you guys ever thought about what you would do if you weren't Christian? Mm, yeah. Like what your life would be like. Like what? I mean, would you even have kids in the first place? You know. Um, I don't know. I, like, have you guys thought about that? Yeah, would you go, here's a simple way to put it, would you go to church next Sunday if you knew for a fact there was no God? Hmm. No to Mike's question. And no, to, and also no to Matt's question. <laughs> the church one seems easy. Why Why would you go if you knew there was oh. no God? Oh, okay. If, so this would be... Um, my answer so like I because I do think there is something like beautiful and ordered about the Christian story even if it were somehow definitively proven untrue you know and like I think there's an undeniable historical good that's come from it in terms of like just completely changing the worldview of pre-Christian the pre-Christian world which definitively saw women as second class, like definitively saw like the poor as like disgusting and repugnant, which definitively um, saw like slavery as a norm, which did like, so like there, I don't know, I guess there are like tons and tons of like really legitimate things that have, or legitimate evils that like have kind of fallen apart because of this story. Like even if it is just a story, so to speak. Yeah, but nobody, 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 well, nobody knows well, like so much of that is already built into society and um, it is deeply Western and Western is, is probably deeply Christian, but it's it's hidden in plain sight. Um, I've uh, have an interesting anecdote there. Um, I don't think my parents will mind me sharing. It doesn't paint either of them in a bad light. It it kind of illuminates sort of both sides of the same coin. So I asked them this on one of the many road trips between Champaign and Freeburg. Would you go to Mass uh, on Sunday if you knew definitively that God didn't exist or the church wasn't true or whatever? And my mom said no, and my dad said yes. And I sort of... I don't remember if I asked him to explain or if I just inferred, but I think that what my mom, and this seems about right based upon my knowledge of their demeanors and interpretations of the world, my mom and I are sort of first like truth oriented. What is true, then figure everything else after that. My dad is more ordered, practical first, and then sort of figure things out of what seems to be true. And, well, I don't know. I mean, I think that's sort of, that's sort of all there is to, <laughs> that's all there is sort of to that thought. Um, yeah, just kind of different level of private. I mean, people in a perfectly ordered human, like everything would be the exact same level, but um yeah, I don't know. It's just sort of an interesting, interesting um, observation there. I but yeah, like I said, I I I'd, I'd be with my mom and 
become a secular humanist. <laughs> I guess. Even though I'd feel utterly hopeless about secular humanism. <laughs> I guess to kind of just try to give as many thoughts then as we can on this idea of how to, you know, because for Dorothy, this kind of idea of raising her child is part of what kind of brought her into the church. But to be fair to, to like all parties and all of our, I mean, just all thoughts, like, do you guys think someone could legitimately say, though, okay, that's true that a lot of these good things came out of a Christian society, like kind of like Matt was saying, and that, you know, the and a lot of people that go to church probably don't believe, to be totally honest. You know, they're there for the community, the people, maybe there's a good school attached to the church that they can send their kids to. Um, that's what they've always done. They're comfortable. Their friends are there. So, like, maybe a lot of people that go to church actually don't believe in the things but find it provides those other outlets for them, if that makes sense. Good school, community, friendships, that type of thing. So in response, if if someone was kind of arguing the other side, if, you know, because Dorothy obviously went into the, I'm, you know, kind of wanted to raise her child in the church, could someone else make the argument? But if all these people going to church don't actually believe it, they're just there for these other reasons, can we just get these other reasons without going to church? Does that make sense? Um you know, we can find other ways to get community and good schools and serving the poor that don't necessarily have to be centered around the church. So could someone argue that they can get their this order or this structure without the, the belief in God, if that makes sense? Yeah, you know, I think... Um, I, I hope this fits in here. I think the beautiful thing about the church is how it it doesn't necessarily require all kinds of kinds but it takes all kinds of kinds and what i mean by that is you have folks like um my dad who the part that the part of the church that like he really invests in is you know he used to love doing uh these catholic heart work camp stuff and he loved being the troubleshooter yeah the troubleshooter where he'd come in and identify whatever the uh construction carpentry type problem was of the situation there and then he'd explain you know what the what sort of strategy needed to be taken in order to solve solve this problem and then you have people and then other things you know he'd he'd value the church with varying degrees then you have people like my mom and myself whereas yeah we you know we probably most embrace the the truth of the church and how it's this explanation for reality and sort of sort of knits things together in a certain way and then you sort of have um you could sort of say just simply everyone in between there right and with not that being a scientist is a synonymous with being an atheist but in the sense that a lot of atheists are practitioners of scientism um, or materialists right it's like how many different kinds of people can be a materialist or a practitioner of scientism right it's one kind of nerd that's all <laughs> right but within the church 
it's ironic because people sort of criticize it for the exact opposite. But you can have so many different kinds of people legitimately contributing, legitimately investing in it in this very sincere way that um, that I think is potentially impossible to get anywhere else. Even politics. Like, how many different... You can sort of imagine the person in your family who's... Yeah, they're the political person. It's a fairly narrow brand of human that's sort of a political person versus um, you can sort of add that to the box of what I was just saying. You know, the Catholic or the Christian who's just really into politics and really enjoys investing in, in that particular way. Ross, since you're the uh, only one of us with kids, did you have any experiences similar to Dorothy Day? Like, just kind of contemplating like raising your children and like did that trigger any sort of um, either like new or, or increased devotion or, or anything like that? In some sense, no, just in the sense that she obviously had this like massive switch. You know what I mean? Where for me, I think it was more of a if I really believe this, I just need to kind of pick it up because I'm, I need to now show my kids how to do it. Does that make sense? Um, so I guess, I don't know if I can relate totally to this idea of, you know, I'm going to choose something because I, not because of, I'm sure there was other reasons that she, you know, chose to join a church, but um, there wasn't this sense of, oh, wow, you know, I need to, this is this thing that I'm not really a part of, but it provides the answers I want for my child, and st- so much that's a contrib- maybe a tri- contributing factor to myself kind of pursuing it. But um, for me, it's always been more so of, I think having kids just kind of challenges you to, I mean, just live better. I can, in, in some ways, it kind of forces you to, simply because you don't have time for yourself as much anymore. So you're kind of just forced to do a better job at what you are doing. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if this makes sense or not, but I'll say it. Like, sometimes it makes me think about how, maybe it ties in okay, but like, I'll think about with my children, like, do I have different standards for them? Like, it's weird in some ways, it's like, I almost expect higher standards for them than I have for myself. And that's kind of like challenged me to just, again, just, I guess, just live better. Um, like, I don't know, like I've thought, but like, we have, you know, we don't let the kids, we try to kind of limit their screen time. And, like, there's no way I would let them, like, eat junk food and look at a screen before bed, right? Because that's just not a good thing for them. Like, that's just not healthy. So then, like, as I go eat some candy corn and whip out my phone before I go to bed, it's like, dang it. Like, if I'm not, ex- if I'm expecting my five-year-old to be better than this, like, I probably should be better than this. Um, and I know that's just, like, a small thing. But I feel like, for me, it's been more like little things like that. Just... Man, like if I, I know the right answer, I believe I do. So in that way, I'm different than Dorothy because I'm already kind of I have this values, these beliefs. But they've kind of I think raising kids kind of shows me that I'm not maybe quite as cool as I thought I was. Yeah, that's that's uh, an interesting observation. Yeah, not having kids, but even just with um, people when I date. In fact, just. The the last young woman you, and young ladies, you can find Mike on several dating <laughs> platforms. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, past young woman I dated, we 
so we're, we try to do this, uh, well, half holy hour once a month, which I don't do solo. But it's interesting when, um, <laughs> when you are involved in other people's lives, um, obviously in this case it wasn't a child or even a spouse, but it was just someone that I was uh, discerning, committing myself to. Um, there's, yeah, like Ross was saying with the candy corn, it's like it becomes, well, something bigger than myself is going on here. So I have to, you have to figure this out. Um, so, yeah, so I guess sort of tied in with Dorothy Day, that's sort of what she was getting at, that if she had never had Tamar, she might not have ever asked these questions of, um, that she was sort of getting at here. Um, and she would have been like, oh, well, whatever, you know, I can just continue doing my atheist communist thing. It's, it's working, uh, working well enough. But when she had that child literally in her arms, like, oh man, this, I, yeah, I gotta, gotta get this figured out. Um, so to summarize, because you're in a close relationship, a kid, a significant other, it raises your expectation for spiritual intimacy or yeah, curiosity. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's the most precise word for it, but I mean, it's that's accurate enough. Um, yeah, huh. I'm trying to think now all of a sudden about in the mind of an atheist or agnostic, What's the corollary to that thought that me and Ross have just described? Does that make sense? What's the atheist corollary to which thought? Say it. So if I say I need to do this half holy hour once a month with this girl because I care about a relationship, what does the atheist agnostic say? There's a corollary to that thought. Hot yoga on Sunday morning. Next <laughs> yeah, fair enough. That, that might very well be it. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say the answer would be any, any, I mean, put insert your idol here. You know, and I think like, yeah, I need to commit to, you know, social justice more or like I need to work out more or be healthier or eat more natural or, you know, do hot yoga, you know. Yeah. Or eat clean. The reason I bring that up is because apparently eating clean, using the word clean, is sort of a racist term. Because that implies certain people eat dirty, which implies certain people can't afford certain foods, which, and that's associated with race and class, which means eating clean is a racist term, you racist <laughs> you were going in that direction. <laughs> Dang, how did you know, Mike? Food and, food and health is the last moral high ground. You can judge on food and health still. Yeah. That, is, hmm. that is okay. All other aspects, no, but you can be morally superior with those still. For now, we'll see. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. Maybe your carbon footprint. That's next. We mentioned Jordan Peterson, but I think he'd be an interesting person to bring up here because, and I know we're probably getting close to being done, but 
I think in a lot of ways, <clears throat> religion does provide a lot of these things for people, right? Kind of this order, this structure, this way of, you know, how I want to live my life. So when people have, if someone rejects it be for X, Y, Z, whatever reason, but recognizes, you know, that does provide other good things, though. A community, I mean, blah, blah, you could just insert lots of things. So they go looking for it in other ways. I mean, they're probably going to ultimately find a little bit like that. Wherever they kind of throw themselves into isn't necessarily going to fill the same void, right? Like, um, yeah, if you actually believe that, you know, God created the universe and I'm going to live my life according to this way because that's going to not only make me happiest on earth, but also, you know, help me, blah, blah, and, you know, eternal salvation, all these awesome things like, okay, eating healthy doesn't really seem to be on the same scale as that. So it seems like to me that, you know, that they're, you're going to kind of, you know, maybe throw yourself into something, but you're going to kind of find it wanting a little bit. So you might look to something else. But I think Jordan Peterson, and I've listened to a little bit of him, not a lot. Um, he seems to kind of provide, in a lot of ways, some of these things we're talking about without explicitly tying them to, I mean, Catholicism, Christianity, Islam, any religion, right? So... I, I, and I mean, it does seem that he's quite popular amongst a lot of young people, and I would kind of just wonder if that's partly why, if he's able to kind of maybe provide a, a, a good, intelligent explanation of, you know, why, to, like, write 12 rule. what is it, 12, what is his book? Sorry, I already forgot his book, um, but... 12 Rules for Life. 12 Rules for Life. He provides this order, or a, a way of order, for someone who doesn't necessarily believe in God. Maybe, I think, because another dynamic, because I have, I've listened to a decent amount of Jordan Peterson, and I think a certain dynamic of his that, because, like, I think he, he seems to be the, um, I guess, perhaps a surprisingly cogent, like, person who argues for order, right? That seems to be, like, something that, that a lot of people kind of push back against is the order element, and... Uh, at least modern, the modern man, uh, or postmodern maybe. Um, I think an important and overlooked element of what he talks about is like just the importance of a balance between chaos and order, and how like there's a certain amount of chaos that you need to like bring out like certain elements of your character that have to like tame that and like bring order to chaos, right? Because that's how you grow, essentially, is by, like, taking on chaos, taking on suffering, and putting it to good use. Or, like, reorganizing it in a way that that brings goodness and order. Um, Not that chaos in itself is something, like, worthwhile, but, like, you need to enter into that. And I think maybe that's, that's why Dorothy Day is just an interesting kind of person who kind of pierces through... Or kind of finds like common ground, perhaps. No, that seems too like cheesy. Like she just kind of pierces through, like a lot of lies on like either end. Like people who like really, really like order, and you need to have every like your whole life figured out and planned. Um, and then like folks who are more chaotic and and you know, um, just kind of live life by the seat of their pants and um, you know don't like being restricted by norms and rules. But, like, she lives life... Oh, go, were you going to say something? Okay. 
because she she lives life in a kind of a radical way and like just the presence of her baby kind of triggers this kind of unforeseen um shift that like has made her into i mean if she if she didn't become catholic like she'd probably just be just another you know social activist you know like I don't know. Like, I don't know what could becomes of her, but like this unexpected thing, this sort of chaotic moment in her life that she needed to bring order to, you know, fostered this, this really beautiful and interesting life. And like, she was not in control of that. You know, she just kind of, she entered into the chaos that she wasn't in control of, but like God made order of that. Um, which I think that might be like the fundamental part that like yeah god has to make the order of things not you um and maybe kind of like a central thing and that's something i've kind of been at least thinking about maybe not in those explicit terms because i just because it's only been recently that i thought you know came across the speech and talked to you guys but i think that's an interesting way just like the i mean our baby's coming in like five weeks or so and just like shoot you know there's going to be a lot of chaos there and uh but at the same time, like, that's, yeah, like, I'm not in charge, you know. And, and like, Job wasn't in charge. And that's kind of, like, the fundamental thing that, or I guess maybe that's the lesson, you know, is that, like, you're not in charge and, like, but and the only thing that can bring order is, you know, the creator of order, order itself. Yeah, her and Peter seem, seem like the inverse of each other. Peterson, like, the secular thinker who believes in order and some sort of higher truth and kind of brings that to the masses and perhaps even almost brings it back into the Christian world and then Dorothy the Christian who sits more in the social justice movement bringing that towards probably a little bit of both but they're definitely operating in somewhat different realms for their uh, you know what they're known for in everyday settings who's the Dorothy Day of today no 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 here's how we're gonna do it alright God <laughs> God doesn't Good try. God doesn't exist. Jesus doesn't exist. Well, he he never he the 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 conspiracy conspiracy theories are true. The Romans hid the body. Okay, so Jesus is out of the question here. Buddha's not going to work Pope out. Pope Francis is the Dorothy Day today. Not work out. And uh and Muhammad, no, he's not going to work out either. Okay, you have no options there. What are you going to do next Sunday? Around the horn. Hold on, hold on. Say it one more time for us. Make it <laughs> like every other word you said yeah, broke up. Uh, just lucky, like, so lucky, repeat it one more time. Lucky for repeat us, it it's time. on Audacity, so it will come off loud and clear for the audience. God doesn't exist. Jesus <laughs> was not God. It's not going to work. Muhammad was not muhammad um 
Joseph Smith, don't fall back on Joseph Smith either, all right? <laughs> what are you going to do next Sunday and every Sunday of the rest of your life? Play golf? Yeah, really? I am. Yeah, 100%. Like, uh, especially, <laughs> hold on, hold on. In the in the way that Ross's grandfather played, he he got twenty guys mm-hmm. together, and just the stories I've heard of the way he did it was like a you know very high community spiritual sense. He he fostered a lot of like relational things, so I think I would lean towards that. Can't just be play golf, but like get as many people together as possible every single week to play golf. Re- that sounds like fun. The I can get a board. Of Landon. It's already started. I think you were too excited. <laughs> I mean, I might be a member. That sounds kind of nice. <laughs> it's, it's, I, it's not my idea. It's more from Ross's lineage than mine. Yeah, but you have bought it yet. Yeah, I'd probably, I'd, as I said earlier, go the secular humanist route. Um, <laughs> I don't, you know, in, in all honesty, mm, man, oh boy, here's, there's so, there's a lot of, can I jump in on this question? Go ahead. I actually like this question because it makes me think like, maybe I'm just a lesser man than you guys, but like, I feel like I need that order of going to church every Sunday because just even, like, playing with your thought. Like, Landon just got really excited. He was like, I'm going to go play golf and get 18 guys together. It's like, that sounds like a good day. Mike, you're probably, I don't know, you've, you probably already run 12 miles, so I don't know what else you would do. Man, um, I'm not sure what you'd say, but it would probably be good. And I was like, honestly, like, I'd probably just sit around. Like, I don't know. Like, I might go on a walk. I might watch a show. Like, and I was just like, gosh, like, how lame is that? Like, um, so I was like, I don't know, maybe that's, like, some sort of, impl- like, Maybe there's something to that. Like, I need that. Because otherwise, like, I look at how life would be and it would just be boring. Ross Ross needs those fire and brimstone steep speeches. Ross is, at, is afraid of hell. The pure definition of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so I'll tell you what's on my mind. I'm sort of stuck between... Um, secular humanist and doing something very intentional though with my kids uh god willing (laughs) i guess uh i don't know no longer god willing uh every sunday um or continuing to go to church but just intentionally lying to my kids I think I'd just go full blown millennial and move to Colorado and just like wear a, spend my weekends in the wilderness. Wear a beanie. Wear a beanie, you know. Just you know, man. Pretty sure that's what I'd okay. do. I would look at your Facebook posts about it. Well, y'all y'all heard it here first. What we would do if God was no longer an option for our Sundays. Mm. And we'd all probably become butts the rest of the week every day for the rest of our lives <laughs> what do we got going on next episode we are going a slight i mean well we're still in the the speeches about god 
series. We're hearing from uh, a little different, a little different background, but uh, and a little more modern. So uh, Billy Graham is the man we're hearing from, and we're going to discuss his 9/11 message from the Washington National Cathedral on uh, September 14th in the wake of the September 11th attacks. What up? Great. Can't wait. We're the speech guys. It's already been cut, Landon. That's it. That's not going to be there. <laughs>